Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. Right out of the gate. This is not safe for sensitive little ears, but (laughs) I could not resist delivering to you this Ars Technica article about how one dead duck can change your life. It's called Dead Duck Day marks that time. A scientist witnessed gay duck necrophilia. So a Dutch ornithologist of the name Kees Moliker, he was just working quietly in his office in the new wing of the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam in the Netherlands when there was an unusually loud bang one floor below. Now, the wing had an all-glass facade and sometimes it would take on mirror-like qualities. So unfortunately, there was a regular supply of birds colliding with the glass. And in this case, the collision was from a Drake Mallard duck who he found lying dead on its belly in the sand. It's regularly happening and they're not doing anything about it? Yeah. Yeah. For what it's worth, everything about this article is wrong. Okay. It screams of (laughs) wrongness. So if you can kind of lean into that, it goes much easier, which is probably what that living duck told the dead one. So (laughs) things took an unusual turn. That that was too far. Uh, Yeah. I took a bow. You guys didn't see it, but I actually took a bow. Okay. So... He finds this poor dead Drake Mallard duck and things get weird because he soon spots a second living male nearby, which began pecking at the back of the dead duck's head. And after a couple of minutes, the living duck, quote, mounted the corpse and started to copulate with great force. Mm. Ooh. It only stopped for a couple of short breaks, according to Moliker's recollection, and the ornithologist managed to snap some photos what? of his <laughs> odd behavior before intervening and collecting the dead duck specimen over the noisy objections of its living quote unquote mate. Ugh. Those photos can now be found on 4chan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and some are actually in the article itself. So, oh, you know, no. <laughs> well, but, you know, he took the pictures because it was the first documented case of homosexual necrophilia in the species. And look, for science, you are a scientist for, for science. science. Exactly. They, they, they were done tastefully. Right, right. <laughs> They're well lit. You know, it was 1995. And I will say that the photos are in black and white. So mm. take with that All as right. you will. But he takes these pictures. He writes about it. And he does, in fact, publish his findings. And he does so in a 2001 paper that would eventually snag him something called an Ig Nobel Prize Mm. in biology. Yeah, I had to Google that. Apparently, the Ig Nobel Prize is a satiric prize awarded annually since 1991 to celebrate 10 unusual or trivial achievements in scientific research. It's like the Razzies for science. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly right. (laughs) Its aim is to, quote, honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. So <laughs> he gets this Ig Nobel Prize in 2003 
It also inspired something called an annual Dead Duck Day celebration, which is held at the very spot the unfortunate duck perished,、oh. where it has been marked by a memorial plaque. Yes, the brief commemorative ceremony, which also acknowledges quote the billions of other birds that died from colliding with glass buildings and challenges people to find solutions to this global problem, is typically followed by get this a six course duck dinner at a local Chinese restaurant called Tai Wu. All right. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I know it just snowballs into horrific absurdity, and believe it or not, this event. Is co-organized by the museum and the European Bureau of Improbable Research. I didn't even Google that because at this point I know I'm in the bad <laughs> timeline. Everything wrong is right. Right. So okay, the paper itself it did have some academic rigor. He、uh, noted that the museum's park has several water features like ponds and ditches. And there is a wild population of mallard ducks, numbering between forty and fifty individuals at the time of the incident. And his hypothesis is that the two ducks were in the midst of an aerial chase or pursuit flight, which is common mallard behavior. Quote: It is highly unlikely that the other drake was just passing by, saw the corpse, and started to rape it. End quote. So he didn't think it was from the water turning them gay. <laughs> Sorry, it's the same water <laughs> source that has been affecting、uh, I mean, amphibian populations. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, as far as the behavior goes, this sounds really terrible. But two male ducks copulating is actually not that surprising. Remember, we're in Pride Week, so here's a really difficult segue. Same-sex pairings have been recorded, and about oh, you know, four hundred fifty species. Species.、Mm-hmm. That's just what we've written about. Okay, we've seen it in flamingos and bison to warthogs, beetles, even guppies. Female koalas will sometimes mount other females, while male Amazon river dolphins have been known to penetrate each other's blowholes. That's、oh. literally what it says, folks. <laughs> Lepidopterist W. J. Tennant, while diligently tracking Mazarine blue butterflies in Morocco, spotted several males of the species mating with each other rather than with females of the species who were abundant. So this is a thing in nature. Yeah. Sadly, so is necrophilia. Necrophilic behavior has also been observed in ground squirrels, New Zealand sea lions, rock doves, pilot whales, and crows, among other animals. And、mm. in fact, Canadian biologist and linguist Bruce Bagemel prefers to call this sort of thing "quote." Biological exuberance. In fact, he <laughs> wrote a book of that title in 2000. The article also includes an embedded TED talk from Keys Molliker. "Quote: How a dead duck changed my life." And yes, I believe he had it taxidermied because he is on stage in the thumbnail holding a very stiff-looking duck and a bag in one hand. I mean, look, it made his career apparently. So I don't、it、blame、really、him. It really did. Like, <laughs> If he's getting TED talks out of this thing, I know. At least he's getting the TED talks. I can't imagine his Tinder profile is doing any better. <gasps> oh no! I'm now no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. All right, from Medical Press. Study shows promising treatment for tinnitus, or if you're from the south, tinnitus. Ooh, the ringing in the ears. Yeah, say who here has ringing in their ears? I know I do, but <laughs> I've also beat them up over the years being a musician、mm. and all. But there is hope on the horizon. For those of you that don't know or are lucky enough, tinnitus is the ringing, buzzing, or hissing sound that varies from occasional to constant. So all that extra noise has a tendency to be annoying, sometimes debilitating. 
up to 15% of adults in the U.S. have tinnitus and mm. nearly 40% suffer chronically and are actively seeking relief. Mm. Susan Shore in Michigan's Medicines Department of Ortholaryngology has led the research on how brain processes bisensory information for personalized stimulation to treat tinnitus or tinnitus. I'm going to, it's going to, tinnitus is going to come out. I prefer tinnitus, you know. Uh-huh. But technically it's tinnitus oh. uh, in the medical and in the British community. Sure, aluminium. Okay, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so candidates for the study range from bothersome to somatic tinnitus, as well as normal to moderate hearing loss. Somatic tinnitus, to put simply, is when pitch changes or volume changes occur with movement. Hmm. Participants received a portable device. The device was programmed to present each participant's personal tinnitus spectrum, which was combined with electrical stimulation. The article doesn't go into specifics of how this works, but they do show a couple of pictures, which looks like a big old Sony Walkman. Oh, well, that's going to date me. Uh, <laughs> two earbuds attached to it, all wired with two small additional wires that look like tiny little EKG meter pads. Huh that are going to go somewhere on your skull. They also show a couple of diagrams with the frequencies affected that are played back to the listener and another diagram with the amount of time and intensity of both the sound and the electric stimuli. From what Ooh. I could gather, they pump a very high frequency, around 7 to 8K. 7 to 8K is where all the S's are, that S mm. that we hear sits at 6K to 8K. They play it for a few milliseconds, then very quickly, after five millisecond delay, the electric stimulation occurs for only three milliseconds, probably enough, not enough to really feel it. For the first six weeks, participants were instructed to use their device for 30 minutes a day. The next six weeks gave participants a break from daily use, followed then by six more weeks of treatment. When the participants received bisensory treatment, they consistently reported improved quality of life, lower handicap scores, and significant reductions in tinnitus loudness. Wow. Yeah, and these effects are not seen receiving sound-only stimulation, which they've been doing for a while. I've seen that firsthand. My father has really bad tinnitus, and so they tried to give him the sound therapy, mm -hmm. and he said, ah, it didn't work. Mm. Now, I have no way of verifying whether he did everything he was supposed to do. Right, and right. And knowing, knowing my dad, I'm leaning towards maybe he left some details out. Mm. <laughs> but what's great about the study, more than 60% of participants reported significant reduction. So they're basically like shocking them through their skulls is what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like, so they're walking mm -hmm. around with this really weird apparatus. It's not subtle. Correct. And I, you're only doing it for 30 minutes. Oh, okay. so I don't think you you're walking around house. with it. All right. Yeah, yeah. So it's just kind of a quick thing. You sit down, do it. And then you're done. Okay. Well, that's nice because I'm sure trying to get treatment for tinnitus and focusing on it would be a maddening experience if it was like half a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, my, my dad said he hears this sound about that loud 24 hours a day. Wow. Oh, oh, yeah. 24 hours That'll a day. get old. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So this is also consistent with an earlier study by Shore's team, which showed that the longer participants received the active treatment, the greater reduction. Okay, now I'm going to sound like a dad, but really just an audio engineer and a musician. Please wear ear protection, y'all, when going to concerts. Mm -hmm. Just because the ringing doesn't happen in your 20s, it creeps up in your late 30s. And quite frankly, it sounds better after that. It's too loud. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely think there's a little bit of masochism in the like, no, make it so loud it hurts because that's part mm -hmm. of the live experience. It's like, that's not enjoyable. 
Well, there's some other study. This isn't in the thing that your balance centers are all connected to your ears, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all the same vibration. And when we get hit with really low bassy stuff, it vibrates the free fall center. Mm. And so you get a little bit of that euphoric free fall feeling. They're getting high on the noise. A little bit. Okay. Yeah, so it'll give a little bit of trance state. And if you were in the military and had no choice. Sure, yeah. There's plenty of occupations where you don't have an option. It's just loud because Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. But at least there is hope with just a little electronic stimulation. That ringing will go away. And I think it's worth it. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from the BBC, and it's called, Why is there taurine in energy drinks? And I should say up front, I have never in my life consumed an energy drink, and I am perhaps unfairly, but nonetheless incredibly judgmental of the entire concept. I cannot fathom why anyone would want to drink them, but it turns out I might have been wrong this entire time, but probably not. So the first (laughs) energy drink was launched in America, of course, in 1949. It was called Dr. Enough, spelled E-N-U-F, and it was marketed as a healthier alternative to soft drinks with less sugar and added B vitamins. Notably, however, it did not contain taurine, which is now a staple ingredient of energy drinks. What year was Coca-Cola? Was that not marketed as an energy drink? No. That was the soft drink that they were basically trying to get people off of, right? Yeah. Well, and the thing is, marketing something as an energy drink versus being what we would think of as an Ah, energy drink. Got it. I think they're basically saying if it doesn't have a bunch of B vitamins, we're not considering it an energy drink. Mm -hmm. Right. If it's cocaine, then that's not really different. (laughs) 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 Got it. Okay. Yes. But to get taurine in the drinks, we have to wait until 1984 when an Austrian marketing executive took a business trip to Thailand and stumbled upon a drink called Krating Dayang. It was sold as a hangover cure. And in addition to the typical caffeine and B vitamins, this non-carbonated drink contained inositol, which is a kind of sugar found in the brain, and taurine. So the Austrian guy teamed up with the Krating Dayang guy. They tweaked the formula a little bit, added some carbonation, and called their new product Red Bull. Mm. And it should be noted that Krating Dayang is still sold all over South and East Asia. The name does derive from a large wild bovine that lives in that part of the world. And it has a label that features two Red Bulls charging at each other. So Red Bull is actually a pretty close translation of its parent product. As for why they added taurine to the original drink, no one really knows anymore. But it may have contributed to the name as well because taurine is an amino acid that was first isolated in the 1820s from the bile of European cattle, a.k.a. Boss Taurus. And as far as amino acids go, taurine is a little unusual. It doesn't build proteins in the body like most amino acids do, but instead plays a key role in the central nervous system, where it regulates the amount of calcium in nerve cells and controls inflammation. Now, in 1980s Thailand, they were mostly relying on anecdotal evidence for this. But in the decades since then, studies have confirmed that taurine does improve people's aerobic and mental performance. And now, just recently, a new study published in Science Magazine has found that taurine may have impressive life-extending and health-boosting properties in a variety of mammals. Oh. The researchers tested the effects of a daily dose of taurine on middle-aged mice and middle-aged rhesus macaques and found that the animals who received taurine had better functioning muscles, brains, 
and immune systems, as well as extending their lifespan by 10 to 12 percent. Which, for a mouse, is a couple of months and a monkey gets a couple of years. But if the effects hold steady for humans, as the researchers believe they will, you're looking at an extra decade of life. Yeah. And, in fact, many people do currently take taurine supplements, generally for bodybuilding purposes, where it's commonly believed that taurine can help control body temperature and reduce muscular fatigue during exercise. The article notes that the lead author of the study would not confirm whether he himself takes taurine supplements because it would be ethically wrong for him to influence others without having the full science yet to back it up. Okay. I mean, they're basically, the reason they think it's going to work in humans is because as you get older, your taurine levels diminish. And that's true of all mammals. So it's why they tested it in mice and in monkeys. But humans also start losing the amount of taurine in their bodies as they get older. So they're like, this is a middle-aged supplement. This is not something babies need. This is something people who are old and tired need. However, it should also be noted that the ideal taurine dose in the mice and monkey study was relatively large. And for a human, it would translate into around six grams per day or roughly six cans of Red Bull. (gasps) As the article says, quote, this is not something to be recommended. (laughs) Right? In addition to nearly 700 milligrams of caffeine, which is enough to cause toxicity in a 150-pound adult, those six cans of Red Bull would contain 32 teaspoons of sugar, which is more than three times the recommended daily limit. So, long story short, taurine seems like it might be really good for us, but you should absolutely not be relying on energy drinks to get it. And I'm an F1 fan, so just Red Bull and me, I'm not going to drink it on principle. And for all of you <laughs> oh. F1 fans out there, you'll get that joke. I didn't know uh, there was a scandal. Okay. <laughs> no, there's not uh, a scandal. They're just, they're ruthlessly winning team. I've got a whole soapbox about how the Red Bull team drips with toxic masculinity at all <laughs> levels, but that is for another podcast. I just remember the thing they used to have, I guess in the 90s, there was a a flying craft competition. Oh, the Flugtag. Yeah, you like went off this ski jump in your vehicle. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's sponsored by Red Bull anymore. Okay. Yeah, Flugtag Flugtag events. Yeah. (laughs) People are going to do that whether or not it's been backed by a company. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. right. This was a long standing tradition, and Red Bull's like, all right, we'll sponsor it for a while. And now it seems like a safety concern, so we're out. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Red Bull sponsors pretty much all of the extremes sports stuff like that's kind of their bag is like humans doing impossible things and machines right because of taurine exactly (laughs) of course it's very extreme (laughs) (laughs) all right next link next link okay this is an article from bbc news an update about convicted u.s spy robert hansen He was found dead in his Colorado prison. So Mm. whether you choose to mourn him or celebrate a double-crossing double agent spy that was alive in our lifetime, it was kind of a notorious story. So he was an FBI agent who turned into a Russian mole, and he is known as one of the most damaging spies in U.S. history. He was discovered at his maximum security facility in Florence, Colorado at 79, Over his lifetime, he received more than 1.4 million in cash, diamonds, and money paid into Russian accounts. At one point, 300 agents were working on his case. It was huge. And if you didn't hear about it, they probably wanted to sweep it under the rug. But Mm. he was sentenced in 2002 to life in prison for espionage. Cause of death has yet to be confirmed, but the way that he got away with this was just kind of insane. So he lived in a modest four-bedroom house in suburban Virginia with his wife and six children 
prior to the arrest. And because of the role he had in the FBI as counterintelligence, he had access to classified information. And in 1985, that's when he started his criminal activity, sending material to Russia and the former Soviet Union. So according to the FBI's website, he, quote, compromised numerous human sources, dozens of classified U.S. government documents, and technical operations of extraordinary importance and value. But while there was some suspicion around his unusual activities occasionally, dude got away with this for years. He had been due to retire at the point when they started looking into him, so they had to act super quickly and they huh. wanted to catch him, quote unquote, red-handed. They wanted to lure him back to FBI headquarters so they could obviously monitor him a bit closer. So they gave him a fake assignment. He began working in his new office at FBI headquarters in 2001 without realizing it was bugged to high heaven with hidden mm. cameras and microphones all over the place. Investigators learned he was scheduled to make a dead drop at a park. So on 18 February 2001, Hansen went to Foxstone Park, located in Virginia, with a plastic bag filled with classified materials. The FBI had seen him frequently in the park before, and as he returned to his vehicle, he was arrested and taken into custody. And during his arrest, he asked FBI agents, quote, what took you so long? <laughs> so he told interrogators that FBI security was pathetic, but he cooperated to avoid the death penalty. Friends and neighbors said they were shocked by his arrest, described him as quiet and unassuming, which, you know, is the dead giveaway now, right? <laughs> right, right. You have to be loud and brash or you're suspicious these days. Right. His family <laughs> drove to mass every Sunday in a 10-year-old van. He was said to be a strict father who limited television for his children. During the time of his arrest, CBS News reported he would frequent strip clubs where he would try to convert strippers to Catholicism. All right. <laughs> he did plead guilty to 15 counts of espionage and in May 2002 was sentenced to life without parole. I guess my question is how many strippers did he convert to Catholicism? Because <laughs> like, you got to have some accomplishments in your life. <laughs> right? I would kind of like to see a Catholic saint of converted strippers. There you go. Yeah, I bet there is one. Because what they do is they have the pantheon of saints and then they just sort of keep adding things yeah. to each one. So a, a particular saint will be like the saint of gardening and jesters and house sales. And yes. Like <laughs> yes. It's a very scalable model if you think about yes, it. Yes, it is. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's very efficient. <laughs> Next link. Next link. From The Guardian. I'm going to bring some hard science to y'all. Are cats really domesticated? <gasps> uh, <laughs> no. Well, here's the thing. They don't have to be because we love them anyway. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah. So full disclosure, I'm a dog person <laughs> who, who married into a cat person family. Mm -hmm. And this article was definitely written by a cat person. Uh. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I don't hate cats. I just read dogs better and worked at mm. kennels for years. So I'm, I'm a little bit biased. Mm -hmm. So speaking of dogs, we can all tell the difference between a wolf and a dog. Well, most dogs anyway. Wolf mm -hmm. and chihuahuas definitely look <laughs> nothing alike. Cats, however, if you saw the ancestor of a domestic cat in your backyard, you think, hmm, meet cat. Yeah. Instead of, hey, what's an African wildcat doing in my backyard? <laughs> mm -hmm. Assuming you're not reading this article or listening to this podcast in Africa. Right. <laughs> However. In which case, please send us pictures of your wildcats. Yes. I, yeah. I would love to see them. There have been a few anatomical shifts. 
For example, domestic cats have longer intestines and smaller brains. <laughs> so they haven't morphed physically like a dog. But what about behavioral changes? How much has that changed? Let's start with the meow. Anyone who's lived with a cat knows when a cat wants food or attention <laughs> or once in the room that has the door closed, you're going to hear them meow. But all small species of wild feline, of which there are many, meow. Mm. Instead, the domestic cat has modified this sound, making it shorter, higher pitched, and more pleasing to our ear. Pleasing hmm. is subjective there. Yeah. I might add. <laughs> Researchers have suggested that humans have an innate preference for high-pitched sounds, and cats adopted this accordingly. They've also, not only have they manipulated their meows, but also the purrs. Like, other small felines do purr, so it's not really an evolution. It's just more manipulation of us to get what Mm. they want. (laughs) They're slightly manipulating the purr. And apparently, I didn't know this, apparently a group of cats is called a clouda. A what? A clouda? C-L-O-W-D-E-R. No. Okay. Like a chowder of cat? No. The chowder. It's a clouder. (laughs) No. Yeah. (laughs) Because the author wonders why a group of cats is called a clouder and not a pride. Mm. Legit question. What the? I've Mm -hmm. never even heard that word clouder. And yet I'm Mm -hmm. I'm offended by that nomenclature for some reason. (laughs) So then why do we consider them loners? Typically, when multiple cats are brought together in the same house, they arrive at different times from different families. Not surprisingly, they don't get along. Mm. Although it's not impossible for two unrelated cats to develop a friendly relationship, a better approach is to bring litter mates into the home together. Mm -hmm. So in conclusion, they haven't evolved much from the African wildcat. Cats are just playing us. Right. It's a long game. They even they made their brains shrink as a method of tricking us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. They're, we're going to uh, find out later their brains are like 12 times more efficient than ours and they can right. use the entire brain. Right. They just have made them smaller so they can be in smaller packages to kill more efficiently. Right. They shrunk, but they didn't say, are there more folds? No. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That I don't know. <laughs> but cats are cats and will be cats. Unless it's cats, then those aren't cats. Those <laughs> and those are, are people animals. in horrifying costumes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next one is from the CBC, and it's called Mom Warns About Margarita Burns After Baby Eats Celery in the Sun. <laughs> Wait, who's making margaritas with celery? Well, no, it's not really margaritas. I'll I'll explain in a second. <laughs> yes, please, because yes. that's confusing. <laughs> so it all started this past March when Rihanna Benzak of Kamloops, British Columbia, was enjoying a lovely day outside with her husband and seven-month-old daughter. Like many babies that age, her daughter was teething, so Rihanna gave her a stick of celery to chew on. The baby gnawed on the celery for maybe five to ten minutes, then they put it away and enjoyed the rest of their afternoon. A few hours later, their baby developed what looked like second-degree burns all around her mouth. (gasps) And there are pictures if you want to look. I don't recommend it. Nope. Suffice to say, the article does have a content warning at the top of it. But... If you don't mind gross medical photos, it's actually pretty fascinating because Rihanna took a whole series of pictures over the next week documenting the injury's progression. (gasps) Oh, you know what, though? Good for her. That's so rarely actually done. Yeah, exactly. Like, she took a really scientific approach to all this, as we will see. But, of course, she took her baby to the doctor on day one. 
and learned that she was suffering from a case of phytophotodermatitis, more commonly known as margarita burns. The name comes from the fact that limes can also cause this reaction, and people are generally more likely to be drinking a margarita in the sun rather than crunching on celery. But in fact, there is a whole list of foods to be aware of, including carrots, peppers, dill, figs, mustard, parsley, and parsnips. What? That's why I don't eat any of those. (laughs) Exactly. That's why. (laughs) So the thing all these foods have in common is they contain furanocoumarins, which are a type of compound that reacts with UVA sun rays specifically and causes burns on the skin that can last for weeks with scarring and hyperpigmentation lasting for months or even years after that. And when the doctor told Rihanna this, she was frankly skeptical. She'd never heard of this thing, and neither had I until I read this article. So she and her husband decided to try it out for themselves. <gasps> they poured a little celery juice on their forearms, stood in the sun for 25 minutes, and sure enough, <gasps> within 30 hours, they both began to develop bright red burns with blisters. And <sighs> yes, she took photos of that too, going all the way up to day 18 after exposure, at which point the burn still looks just as bad as it did on day three. What? Yeah. Benzak says she hopes her social media post documenting all of this will raise awareness of margarita burns, particularly among her friends who work as bartenders in outdoor venues and routinely make beverages with lime juice. Yeah, why wasn't this in the Jimmy Buffett song? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't warn us. He failed to warn us. Well, and it does seem to be only if you sort of leave the juice on. Like if you're drinking a margarita, but you like wipe your mouth off, you're not going to be nearly as affected. Part of the issue was this was a baby and she just sort of had like celery juice drool on her face and never Mm -hmm. got it cleaned (laughs) off. As far as treatment, unfortunately, there basically is none. You just have to let it heal. But Vancouver dermatologist Dr. Joseph Lamb says that you can lower your risk first by not touching these foods if you're out in the sun or, again, washing your hands or face thoroughly after tossing back that margarita. Hmm. You can also potentially get some help from sunscreen, although not all sunscreens are effective because some of them only protect against UVB rays. So if you need another reason to stay inside your house and never leave, now you have one. Or not eat vegetables. Take your pick. You can either stay indoors or you can eat vegetables indoors and not go outside. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay. Good news from futurism.com. Scientists are experimenting with an actual tractor beam to clean up space junk. Yes, folks. Wow. Our steps towards becoming Star Trek are occurring very slowly and very tinyly, but we're getting there, right? And mm-hmm. the idea is if we could get something like this operational, this device could essentially tug away debris without ever touching it. So The researchers are calculating that they could move a several ton object at an admittedly pretty slow pace of around 200 miles over two to three months. Well, no, I mean, not really, considering you're not touching it. Exactly. (laughs) It's a pretty dang impressive. And they're doing this Mm -hmm. by creating an attractive or repulsive electrostatic force. That's Hans-Peter Schaub, the chair of the Aerospace Mm. Engineering Department at University of Colorado Boulder, in a press release. Quote, it's similar to the tractor beam you see in Star Trek, although not nearly as powerful. And we are a long way from this being a space-worthy prototype at the moment. But a real-life tractor beam could eventually be a super invaluable tool to help clean up the space junk that pollutes our increasingly crowded orbits around Earth. Not Mm -hmm. to mention one of those rare moments where actual tech seems to be making inroads towards golden era sci-fi. Okay, so... 
The researchers are experimenting with their designs by using a large specialized vacuum chamber that simulates the conditions of space. Their favorite concept, which is the so-called electrostatic tractor, uses more or less the same principles that cause a balloon to stick to your head after rubbing it mm. on your head. So in theory, at a distance of some 50 to 90 feet away, a spaceship could use the device to shoot a beam of electrons at a hunk of space junk, inducing a negative charge in the debris while producing a positive one in the servicing vessel. This would gradually attract them together. And with that attractive force, you can essentially tug away the debris without ever touching it. Now, space debris is a problem we've talked about before, and it's only getting worse. Geosynchronous orbit, which is like the Bel Air real estate in space where satellites can remain in a fixed position relative to Earth, we're mm. running out of this real estate. And in addition, NASA has recently reaffirmed the seriousness of the space junk issue in a March report that concluded that lightly nudging debris rather than removing them from orbit altogether might be the most practical solution. And tractor beams could be a significantly cheaper cleanup tool, too, because a craft equipped with one could move up to dozens of objects during its lifetime. I would say there are materials out there that won't take an electrostatic charge. Hmm. Like they're literally electrostatic discharge materials, plastics that reduce Aww. that. So let's just not shoot those plastics in the space. No, no, those belong right here on Earth where they can pollute our oceans. Just go right back into the ocean <laughs> and we'll be fine. Where they're safe. Yeah. They're safe. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the Portuguese drone that douses wildfires from above. The weird history of invented languages, and scientists finally invent robot that can sweat heavily. <laughs> so all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com/DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye. <laughs>